Now from Colossians, if you'd stand out of respect for God's word. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Seated. Just as a note before I preach, as I was working on this after the bulletin was printed, I realized I wanted to kind of extend, so I'll be also quoting verses 13 and 14, but I'll make sure I read that for you since you won't have it in your bulletin. But would you please join with me in prayer before we continue? Lord, it is a constant thing, I think, that we need to remember before you that we stand in your grace that you are a God who smiles upon us and delights to give us good things. And so, uh, in that knowledge, in that confidence, uh, we ask you that you would do that right now, that, um, that as we look at this passage, as we seek to hear it, that you would speak truth to our hearts and that you would change us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So it is obviously New Year's Day, and um, for most of my life, I've always found New Year's Day kind of a curious holiday. I'm not, you know, it wasn't exactly clear to me what we are celebrating. It's not like with Christmas, there is, you know, a huge event, Jesus being born. There are other days, like maybe like Martin Luther King Jr. Day, where you're at least focusing on a person, or even Thanksgiving is focusing on a practice. But, but what are we doing when we're celebrating New Year's? It's, you know, we change a calendar. I guess we don't actually even change a calendar anymore because who even uses calendars? Your just phone says now it's 2023. Um, that's at least how I have thought about it until recently. I, have, I think I've begun to appreciate actually why this is actually important, and that is we are, we are time-bound creatures. We, we, we have, I think, something that's very valuable and important to us of marking time. And at the end of the year, we get to do that. We get to say, okay, 2022 happened. What do I think about that? What are some of the things that were good that happened? What are the disappointments? And then as, as we now begin 2023, we also ask, okay, we have a new year before us. There's in some ways a fresh start. What do we want to see happen? Who do we want to be? What do we want our life to look like? This, of course, is 
why we often have, you know, people often will make New Year's resolutions. This is a chance to say, okay, I want to live with more intentionality. There are things about my life that I want to see happen, so here are some choices that I'm going to make. Of course, the moment we start talking about New Year's resolutions, there's almost always some sort of reaction of kind of cynicism or hopelessness, right? Because many of us have thought about New Year's resolutions that last until like January 3. I mean, this can feel sometimes like ideas that we have, desires for us to grow and to change just can't happen. There's a sense that oftentimes we, we kind of greet the idea of doing something new with a degree of pessimism because we feel well, stuck. When I was thinking about this idea of, of stuckness, I was reminded of something that happened about 20 years ago. I was um, just newly out of seminary, working at a church in San Jose, and the senior pastor asked me to visit um, a member that I didn't even know, know was part of the church. And I was told ahead of time, he's a little eccentric, so I, I come to this house, and I knock on the door, and this man who's probably, I don't know, in his early 40s, but clearly has a certain degree of social awkwardness. He knew I was coming, but I wasn't sure if he was happy I was there or not. But eventually, he, he welcomed me into his house. And do you know, have you ever had one of those moments where you are doing everything you can to hide what you're really feeling with your expression? That was what happened when I stepped into this house. And I think I was stepping into the dining room, but I'm not sure because... I kind of only a little bit could see a table because it was covered with stacks of newspapers and, and envelopes and knickknacks, literally probably up to about here, and not only covered with it, but below it also there were stacks, and there were stacks on the floor, and there were stacks on the chairs. I had never seen anything like that. I, I to this day, have no idea how he could have accumulated so much paper, because it wasn't just in that room. It was in every room of the house, just piles of stuff, probably from like 20, 30 years ago at times that were just everywhere. We eventually, I mean, I don't even know how he ever sat down. We eventually actually went to the backyard to sit and talk. And I had never encountered this, never heard of this. Later on, I discovered, as probably many of you know, this is not a unique thing to him. This idea of hoarding is, is identified now as a psychological disorder. And, and, and there was a sadness about it when I was experiencing it with him. There, Apparently, you know, like the, the theory is that there is just this, this inability to overcome a certain anxiety. And it's an anxiety having to do with making a decision about the future. Because if you think about it, every time you have a, a newspaper or some sort of thing that's been handed, you have to decide, do I want to live my life without this thing? And for most of us, most of the time, we're like, yes, and we throw it away. And we realize that every time we throw something away, there's just a little bit of danger of regret that later on is like, ah, oh, man, I wish I'd kept that. But, but for, for this person, for people with this, the, they would rather not have to face that possibility. They would rather not have to live in a future with the regret of wishing they had kept stuff. So they just hold on to everything. And, and as a result, they are held captive by their past. I mean, in, in a very visual way, this person was stuck. I could not see any way he could, he could move. There was no sense of growth. He was permanently held captive to all of the things that he was holding on to, a fear of that if he lost something, his life would somehow be worse. Now, my guess is, even though maybe a few of us hold on to stuff like old ratty t-shirts that we should have thrown away for a while ago, most of us don't have that level of, of disorder. But I wonder how much we might 
at least to some degree identify with a kind of feeling of stuckness. A feeling maybe even of being held captive to our past. Failures that have kind of laid the ground for where we are today or, or habits that seem unbreakable. I wonder how many of us feel just kind of a, a stagnancy. It might not be something that we're conscious of. We, we might kind of associate it with work, where work just feels like it's just the grind. There's, there's no progression. Or, or we might associate it with our marriage, where we've learned how to be nice, but we never go to places of vulnerability and things seem stuck. Or maybe a relationship with a child or a parent. Or, or maybe we feel it spiritually, where there is just this sense of kind of dryness and a lack of life in our relationship with God. But what's really going on, perhaps, is that there is a lack of change inside of us a lack of growth, a lack of movement. And I would suggest that so often when that's the case, the issue is not that we do not have the capacity to grow. The issue is that we don't believe we have the capacity to grow. We perhaps even are paralyzed by fear of what will happen if we try, so we don't try at all and we just assume that this is all that can ever be. And this morning, I want to suggest that God's Word is telling us that when we're in that place, we are deeply mistaken. That as we look at the year before us, we can look forward to the real possibility of change and growth because, and here's where our passage takes us, because we have a gospel that has extraordinary power to bring about change. So what Dave just read was the beginning of Colossians, and, and Paul is praying here for a church that feels stuck. They've become Christian maybe a few years ago, but now they're in this place of kind of stagnancy where there, there seems to be a lack of vitality. They're wondering if they've missed something. And so this letter is to help them, and this prayer is, is to help them to see things differently. And perhaps you notice that he's, as he's praying, there, there's really two paragraphs. And if you don't have your bulletins open, it might be valuable to have them open because we'll be kind of like walking through this passage. But there's these two paragraphs. The first one is a, a, a paragraph of gratitude to God. And what he gives thanks for is, God changed you. And then the second paragraph is the paragraph where he is praying. And what is he asking God for? He's asking God expectantly that God would continue to change them. And what, what is especially important for us to notice as we're looking at that is there is an engine that is driving this change in both of these paragraphs, and that is the gospel. This prayer focuses on the gospel and its power to change. And I, I deeply believe that if we can hear and internalize it, it has the power to continue to change us. So this morning, I want us to just kind of consider three things as we look at this prayer and as we think about the year before us. I want to see what this gospel is. I want to see what this gospel has done. And I want to consider what this gospel can do. So first, what this gospel is. As, as Paul begins with his praise, and in the first couple of verses, he talks about the, the things that have happened in the church of Colossae and even beyond that. He then traces it specifically to where he says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So he's saying, 
what has happened to you is because of the gospel. And I've already used the gospel a number of times. Our church talks about the gospel a lot. But what, what do we even mean when we're using that word, the gospel? Well, Paul actually begins to define it immediately in the next verse. He says, you've heard the truth of the gospel which has come to you, and you've heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. That's, that's his quick summary to begin with of what the gospel is. The gospel is this news that God is gracious. The news that, that even as we have turned our backs on our Creator, He is not holding our sins against us, but He wants to do good. He wants to pour out His generosity. He wants to extend His kindness to us. That's the gospel, the news of God's grace. And then, as he continues on, by the time we get to the very end of this prayer, he wants to make sure we understand a little bit more. So, in, in verse 12, he talks about how we give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And then verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So as he is trying to tell us more about what this gospel is that he thinks is so important, he uses this, this language of, of transfer. He, there is, at the end of things, Paul is saying, going to be two groups of people. There is the domain of darkness, and there is the kingdom of his beloved Son. There are, with Jesus, the saints, that is, the holy ones of light, and then there are those who are enslaved to sin. Two groups. Now, he focuses especially on this idea of, of light and darkness, and maybe it's worth pausing to think about why does he say that there is this domain of darkness, that humanity is naturally in darkness? Well, um, have you ever experienced rage? I'm not talking about, like, minor irritation or even controlled anger? Have you ever gotten to the place where you are so driven by this emotion of anger that you, there's a part of you that almost switches off, that part that's aware of what you are doing, that part that's aware of the, the consequences of your actions? It's kind of like you just kind of like shut the light off of that. Like you, you move yourself into a lack of consciousness and you just let your rage go. It's, it's a scary thing because just giving yourself over to that is never something that brings you to a good place. The, the same kind of phenomenon can happen in, in other forms of, of sin or temptation. I, I, I know a man who, who became really entrapped um, with sinful, uh, sexual sin, uh, first pornography and then adultery. And, and he, he spoke of how even... When, when he was engaging in these activities, he knew it was wrong. He knew that this would hurt his wife and his children if ever they found out. And he knew it was not good. But he spoke of how just when, when the temptation came, there was a part of him that just kind of shut his eyes. Like just stopped thinking. He, he, he moved himself into darkness and allowed himself to be carried by these things, even though in the end it did destroy his marriage, and he still hasn't reconciled with his children. There is this darkness that can happen, and what Scripture says is that there's a sense that every single person has, has made that choice when it comes to our relationship with God, that there is 
something about what we owe to God, who He is, who, what He deserves from us that we would just rather not think about. And so we just shut off the light and allow ourselves to be in darkness and not think about who we should be before God. And, and in doing so, we entrust ourselves to sin. We, we lead ourselves into slavery. It is a dark picture that leads to death. That is the dominion of darkness that Paul is talking about. But he says that's not the whole story. There is, there is this beautiful ray of light that shines through in the gospel where it says that God has qualified you he has transferred you so that no longer do you have to be in the domain of darkness, but you can be a saint in light. You, even though you have done whatever you have done, you can be holy in God's sight. You can be in light so you see what is true. You can belong to the kingdom of Jesus who loves you. You can have this good way and new way. How, he says, he says in verse 14, through the redemption and forgiveness that comes through Jesus. That Jesus has, has come in such a way to rescue everyone who is entrapped to darkness and bring them into light so that they might experience complete forgiveness. Whenever someone comes to an end of themselves, whenever someone says to Jesus, I need your help, my only hope is in you then in that moment, they are moved, they are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, heirs of an eternal glory. That is the gospel. It is the gospel for those who feel stuck, that there is, there is good news for those who are stuck in darkness. That, that is the gospel that Paul is preaching. And Paul says, and this gets us to our second point, this gospel has power. So it is almost with awe that in the opening verses, he, he gives thanks and speaks of the things that happened. When he says, verse 4, we, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. This might not sound as spectacular as it actually is because, you know, we live in a day where at least two billion people in some way confess Christianity, but just think about what it was like a little less than 2,000 years ago. If you lived in Classe or, or any of the surrounding cities, literally nobody had ever heard of Jesus. Not nobody believed or nobody cared. No one had even heard the name. They did not know about Christmas or anything like that. They know the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is awesome. That's where their faith is. And just imagine if you were in one of these towns and you have these, these two foreigners that you've never met before, probably uneducated, almost certainly not terribly impressive, coming and they start talking to people in the community about a Jewish peasant who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah but was rejected by the Jewish leaders. And not only that, he was crucified as a criminal by the Roman Empire. This is not winning you over at first, you would think. And then they go even further, and they say something ridiculous, that this person rose from the dead, not as a ghost, but actually bodily rose from the dead, which, of course, everyone knows bodies don't rise from the dead. And then, as the kicker, these people say, we would like you to join with us and, and, and turn away from your faith the religion of the powerful Roman Empire that has dominated, and instead place your trust in this crucified Jewish peasant. 
If you are handicapping the odds of that making any difference, I mean, really? It has no shot. Except what happened is astonishing, right? I mean, like, wherever people would go, you see these, these new groups of, of believers who heard this message, and it's like the penny dropped, and like, yes. And, and it talks about how, how their hope is now, they have a hope not in what they can see, not in the Roman Empire, but their hope is hidden in heaven, but they now have this orientation to life. They have this faith not in, in finances or military might, but in, in a man they have not seen but believe is the Son of God. And and they have, rather than just kind of this, this self-orientedness, they have a love where there's a concern for their community and, and the poor, and, and something has happened. And, and, and Paul explains, yeah, that's what the gospel does. He uses this language of how, as it has also done among you since the day you heard, sorry, going back, of this you've heard the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing. Those are both life words, like bearing fruit. It, you know, like every new believer, it's like this new fruit on this vine, and it just keeps growing and expanding and just going. So for probably like the millionth time, I will continue to just lean into my nerdiness and, and tell you that the most important and significant Star Trek film is, without a doubt, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And and, I mean, no one can argue with that. It is, it is truly the great Star Trek film. Um, but the reason I'm sharing that is because in, in this movie, there's this important plot device, um, something called the Genesis device. And, and you know, it's, it's this top secret thing that you don't really understand what it is until about halfway through the movie where there's this reveal and you're actually seeing the, the, the main characters are watching a video of what it is and, and, the, and the person says, it is a device that brings life from lifelessness. And, and what it is, is it somehow is there's this explosion that the Genesis device begins. And it starts off like this, this, this catalytic change where this, things change, like, like atoms are transformed. And so as it expands and as it spreads in this chain reaction where there was once death, life comes. So you see in this video this, this rocky moon that has nothing. Suddenly the explosion happens and as you go through, these mountains suddenly are covered with plants and with animals and there's water and it's like this explosion where something once was dead and everything becomes live as it is spread. Which of course is the most ridiculous plot device because there's no way we could do this, right? Like, um, humans are really good at destroying. Like, we have the ability to destroy this world many times over, but the idea of having some sort of detonation that just brings life wherever it goes, I mean, that's just the nonsense of science fiction. Except that's exactly what we're talking about here. There was a detonation when, when Jesus rose and ascended and the Spirit came down upon his apostles, and then they just went. And there's this chain reaction wherever they go. There is life. There are people whose lives are changed. There are communities that love in a way they haven't before. And that chain reaction has continued today. Think about how unlikely it is that we would now be here, way far away from Jerusalem, one of millions, if not billions of people who are worshiping here, worshiping throughout the world because of this gospel. That is power. And we don't even have to think as globally or historically. We can think personally. I know 
having talked with you, there are a number of you who can speak of how there is this specific time in life where you heard the good news of God's grace in Jesus, and it changed you. Like there is a before the gospel and after, and the person you are now is different from who you were before. Which doesn't happen. People don't change. That's something that people keep on saying, except you did. I don't have that story for as long as I know, as long as I can remember, I've, I've known this, the, the truth of the gospel and believed in Jesus. But what I can do is I can look at different times in my life where there are things that God showed me, different tendencies of, of pride or selfishness or controlling, where, where the gospel worked in me to expose these things and move me slowly in repentance. And I can say with confidence, that though I am still definitely not the person that I I hope one day I will become, I am definitely different from the person I would have been were it not for the gospel. Because the gospel has power. Power to change. And that's why Paul gives thanks. Like, I give thanks to God. Do you realize what he did? He, he is changing you. He is changing the world. The gospel has power. And so this is where he takes it. Therefore, he says, you need to understand something. As I am praying, this same gospel still is at work, and it still has the power to change. We get to verse 9, where he says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, I need to pause and correct what I think is a really common misunderstanding of this idea of his will, at least in Colossians 1. So often, I think, when we're talking about the will of God, we're really zeroing in on what does God want me to do? But I want to suggest that Paul has a bigger thing in mind here. I mean, it is important about whether we should marry this person or that, or whether we should take this job or that, but that's not really, I think, what's on, on focus here. Paul is talking about God's decision about you. What God wants to do with you. Does God want to punish, judge, destroy you? That would be a question of his will, but we know what the answer is. What is the answer? God's will for you is grace. God's will for you is transferring you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. God desires to prosper you. That's what he is talking about here when he's saying, my prayer is that you would, be, that you would understand the gospel. Which might seem strange if he's talking to a church who already have become Christians, who have obviously heard the gospel, but, but notice what he says. He doesn't just say that I want you to know it. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I mean, it's one thing to know. It's another thing to know deeply, right? I mean... I could tell you right now, hey, do you know it's about 40 degrees and kind of gray and miserable out? And you go, yeah, that's true. If we all went out and had the rest of the church service and I said, let's take off our coats and just experience the outdoors, after about 30 minutes, you would know that it's 40 degrees and miserable and cold to your very bones. There's a deeper kind of knowledge than you can have beyond just kind of the superficial understanding. And, and that's what Paul is praying for. My prayer, he says, is that you would know, that you would be filled 
with this understanding of God's will for you, with the understanding that God is gracious, understanding of the gospel. And he says, and, and here's what happens as you do. Verse 10, that you will be bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is, this is language of life, isn't it? Bearing fruit in every good work is the idea of a life that has these, these new things coming from it, these, these new works of love, these new changes where, where we begin to develop maybe humility or, or wisdom or, or new consideration for others, bearing fruit. And when he talks about, you know, like this knowledge of God, he's not just talking about knowing the facts and having a good theological education. He's saying that you would know him, that you would increase in the depth of your relationship with God. This is the opposite of stuckness. This is life. He's saying that's what happens. And, and I wonder if when you hear this two, these two words of, of bearing fruit, or I guess these are more than two words, bearing fruit and increasing, if that sounds familiar to you. Because it should. That is exactly what Paul has already said the gospel is doing. The gospel bears fruit and increases throughout the world. And he says, as it goes deeper in you, it will bear fruit and increase inside of you. Because that's how the gospel works. That's how this Genesis device works. In the same way that as the gospel has this chain reaction throughout the world, bringing life wherever it touches, that same thing is now inside of you and doing the very same work in your soul. And wherever it touches, wherever it comes into contact with, with your practices, with your fears, with your desires, with your hopes, it brings life. It brings fruit. It changes you. In other words, Paul is saying, if you have the gospel, you can change. It, it doesn't matter if you think, I'm not the kind of person who can change. It doesn't matter if you've had habits that you feel like are just so deeply ingrained you can't imagine ever doing things differently. It doesn't matter if there are failures in your past that make you feel like you have dug yourself in a pit too deep you can change. You can grow. You can grow in your relationship with Jesus. You can grow in your capacity to pray. You can grow in your ability to love others, even as self-absorbed as you sometimes feel. You, you can grow in patience rather than moving towards anger so quickly. You, you, you can grow in wisdom. And as these things happen, that actually means that you can grow in your relationships with others, that as you shift, your relationships with others can shift. You can grow even in your work, even if your work stays hard, you can learn endurance and joy even in the midst of suffering. You can grow. But, but this is not, Paul is not giving one of those inspirational posters where, you know, like you're on a bike going up the mountain and says, you can do it, like, because, you know, you can't. But the gospel inside of you can. The, the gospel has power that all we have to do is look at the world and see what it has done. And that same power, if you have placed your trust in Jesus, is inside of you. And it has the power to free us from our fears, 
Our fears are so often the reason that we are self-protective, that we are afraid to, to move out in love towards others. And the gospel says, you don't need to be afraid anymore. God is gracious to you. The gospel has the power to free us from our hopelessness. So often we don't try something because we're afraid we're going to fail because we don't think there's any possibility. But, but the gospel says, you are now a holy person in God's sight. Jesus is at work in you, and he is making you like himself. You will grow. You will change. The gospel has power. And this is why Paul's prayer is, oh, I pray that you would grow in understanding with all spiritual wisdom and insight. I pray that this gospel would go deep inside your souls because then you will no longer feel stuck. And so I would invite us as I conclude, as we look at this year, I think it is appropriate for us to make resolutions, for us to think intentionally and say, what, what does it look like for us to follow Jesus this year? How, how can I do this? But before we even do that, let's begin just with this prayer. Let's begin with praying that God would allow the reality of His grace, the reality of what Jesus has done for us, who we are in Christ, the reality of the gospel to just go deep as we await it to bear fruit inside of us.